Tēnā rā tātou katoa, nau mai ki tēnei hōtaka whakamutunga o kōpapa kōrangi. Up or down, reframing the costs of climate change. I'm Marnie Dunlop and in this last podcast we are talking about how we invest in change. Everyone from homeowners to policymakers, from marae committees to corporations is asking how much will climate change cost us and how much will it cost to adapt? But are these the best questions to be asking? Do we risk embedding an unbalanced future because we're struggling to step back and consider the full extent of what's at stake? What would effective adaptation actually look and feel like? This fourth and final podcast with key thinkers in the space examines what we know about costing climate change, what we don't know, and how we can inspire momentum for change throughout our government, businesses and communities. Holding this conversation is Kate Turner, Climate Change Knowledge Broker for the Deep South Challenge. Kei Kate. Kia ora Mani and, and kia ora anō tato. In this conversation, we're going to look at different ways that climate change costs are being considered in decision making at all levels. Being prepared for our changing climate requires broad thinking, action and investment. And what we value and how we think about costs are key drivers of what we decide to invest in, whether at a government, business or a personal level. What we do now is so critical because many of the decisions that are being made today will impact generations of our children and grandchildren. So what are we embedding for them? We're going to explore some of the tools and the thinking that frame and direct these decisions. But first, I want to welcome our guests and have them introduce themselves and their work. I have Sasha McMeeking, Anita Reeford and Jodie Kunch here with me today. So to start with, could you tell us where you're coming from and what is it that you do in your day-to-day that has you thinking about these kinds of questions? I'll pass the rako first over to you, Sasha. Uh, It's a real pleasure to be with you today. Um, By day, I am an associate professor with the Child Wellbeing Research Institute at the University of Canterbury. What that means for the uninitiated is that I'm really trying to understand what the mechanisms are that create social change. Because I think what we think creates change isn't necessarily what really does. So examples like if kids aren't going to school, should we buy more truancy offices? Or should we deal with some of the underlying causes for why kids aren't going to school? Those are some of the puzzles that I think about with the... um, real privilege of being connected to Treasury's leadership on Hiarawaiora, the Mātauranga Māori-based framework for wellbeing that sits alongside our National Living Standards Framework. Tēnā koe, Sasha. Uh, Anita, can I pass over to you? Kia ora, I'm Anita Reeford, so I'm a professor in the AERU at Lincoln University. I also lead the Impacts and Implications programme at the Deep South National Science Challenge. So most of my work is research, reading, talking to other researchers from different backgrounds. So my background is kind of agricultural economics, but now most of what I try and understand is how we can prepare for climate change, adapt to the impacts, what it might cost us, what are the things stopping us, um, what might help us, mostly looking at the primary sector, so in agriculture. So I talk to farmers, um, industry groups, hear about what they're doing, what's um, important for them. Kia ora, Anita. And I'll pass over to our third speaker, Jodie. Kia koe. 
Kia ora. I'm Jodi Kunt, and I wear quite a few hats, actually, but they're all related to our beautiful and precious Moana. In one capacity, I work with the Aotearoa Circle and helping lead their seafood sector adaptation strategy. So that's looking at what the different pathways and options might be for fishing and aquaculture in response to climate change. I've also been working with the Sustainable Seas National Science Challenge, helping to turn research into impact. So on a day-to-day basis, that means working and understanding the intentions of the academic and scientific research that's been done and helping deliver that through particular pieces of advice or applications or guidelines or frameworks that can be then adopted and adapted into different commercial contexts across ocean-based sectors. Um, And then I also lead and coordinate Moana Nui, which is a blue economy cluster based in the top of the south. And the whole goal of that is um, to bring together a diverse group of ocean-related entities, both public and private, community-based and iwi, to increase value, connect people, and also improve the health of our Moana. I spend a lot of time looking at what those big opportunities are in the world. What are those levers for change? What are the um, risks and opportunities on the horizons for our ocean economy and blue economy here collectively? And then listening to what the needs, the barriers, the challenges are for our sectors here to help help them achieve a shared ambition of really driving economic growth that's going to provide social, cultural, and ecological well-being. So... I have a privilege of working with a lot of people that have really big and bold ambitions and want to work with others, both within their business and within their communities, to achieve that. Kia ora, Jody, and I'm really excited to have you all here today to have this conversation. And I'm going to start um, just with a comment, actually. Sasha, in our conversations earlier, you've said that you're not a climate change specialist. And some of what we're trying to do in this podcast and in the symposium itself is really to bring people together who might not normally be in these conversations to really ground truth, so to speak. Before we get too deep, um, I'd like to settle us in a bit. We know climate change is already affecting us in many ways. Some of the really visible impacts of extreme weather events that that many of us are feeling, but also the more complex impacts, uh, perhaps like the cost of food um, or employment disruption. And so before we think about the costs of adapting and how we might be making those choices, how well do we really understand the costs of the impacts of climate change? I'd like to pass over first to Anita for this question. That is a great question because I feel, particularly in New Zealand, we we haven't really started thinking about this um, in any depth. So probably 15 or so years ago around the world, there was quite a lot of interest in understanding what the costs of climate change would be. So there was a, a really high profile report called the Stern Review in 2006 that really tried to quantify globally what climate change would cost. And those kind of studies are useful for highlighting the scale, the magnitude of what is at stake. It's less useful for, you know, the local and the sectoral context, but it's still um, a good starting point. And we've never really had even that kind of level of study in New Zealand. We've really hardly begun to identify and quantify the cost of impacts in New Zealand. And... They're actually really important because it's important to understand the counterfactual of if we do nothing, what that will cost us, because then we can compare that with the costs of adapting and the benefits of adapting. So, for example, 
I talk to farmers quite a lot and some of them might be considering for heat stress to invest in a shelter or barn for their, their cows, for example. And that's going to require quite an investment and they may need to borrow money from the bank to do that. At the moment, they feel the banks don't understand the consequences of them not investing in that barn. So for the the bank, it seems like an additional investment, a liability. But the reality is that if they don't do that, then their financial stability will decline. We need to adapt now, but the benefits are in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And I heard this a few times that, that even though kind of these studies are never perfect, that not having estimates of these costs, either of the impacts or of the benefits of adaptation, it can kind of be seen um, or at least used as a reason not to adapt or not to act. Is that something that you're seeing, I guess, in your example that you've given, Anita, about having to have the evidence before you do something? Yes, well, I mean, I think there are a couple of things going on, actually. So one is that I guess if we're not really thinking in the long term and thinking about the consequences of climate change on our businesses or our sectors, then we don't understand the consequences of inaction. And so while we might think, well, it's just another year, it's just one year where we're experiencing heat stress in livestock, at what point, what is the trigger or the tipping point that makes you make the decision to invest in something? And we have a lot of economic tools that can support making those kinds of decisions, actually. But it does also raise the question about uncertainty, because... Although we have good projections of climate change, there's still a range of potential futures because we don't know how well the world will be at reducing emissions. So we don't know if we're on a high emissions trajectory or low emissions pathway. Every model has its own uncertainty. And as we bring things down to a local scale, we're adding layers of uncertainty to our decision making. So calculating the benefits then does become quite challenging. But I think it's important just because we don't understand necessarily what they are to to use that as a reason for delay. The few studies that we have show often that acting early will be more cost effective than delaying action. Sasha, there's a lot also that can't be easily costed or quantified or possibly shouldn't be costed and quantified. And I wanted to ask you, how do you see the impacts of climate change on aspects of our well-being? First, I'd like to talk about how we use costs, because I think there's a really important distinction between using costs for mechanistic purposes and for motivational purposes. So there's real value in Anita's example about being able to quantify the costs and benefits for business case purposes, whether that's for political decision makers or being able to secure finance um, from our financial institutions. But being able to do that is not going to automatically translate into humans being motivated to change their behaviours. And I think there's quite often a chasm there that we assume that if there is a fully built rational case for something, that will pursue change. And we all know so well that it takes far more than that to pursue change. And for me, that's my real interest in climate change, is that if we're going to do something effective, and hopefully quite fast, because there are some time pressures on that, um, we have to enlist progressively more people into a movement. And enlisting people into a movement of change takes really subtle attention to our triggers for human motivation. And I don't think we're as altruistic as we would like to think ourselves to be. 
So people who buy Tesla cars probably don't do so because they're motivated by the climate impact. They do it because it's cool. And so as much as we might want to place priority, and we should, on very well-prepared costings and analysis, um, we also have to nuance that with how we get people to act in a way that's helpful. And I think in that sense, there's a really strong correlation with well-being because lots of our New Year's resolutions will have survived about three and a half days despite having really clear well-being aspirations because of that disconnect between knowing better and acting better. And I'm really optimistic that the climate change movement can show some really valuable leadership for other movements of change. I think it's also really important to see climate change as an element of well-being and as human well-being as an element of broader well-being because we know we live in a world of layered dependencies. And we'll come back to that as well, I think, Sasha, the mechanisms of social change that you talk Mm. about and how climate change is a layer of our well-being. Jodie, from your perspective, how are businesses approaching this question of understanding how climate change will affect them and their social responsibility as well, or their environmental responsibilities? Well, I think that's a really big question because the diversity in business and the diversity in the way that our businesses operate means that all of us face very different challenges. We all have very different risk appetites and we all have different vulnerability profiles to the entire climate uh, circumstance. And so I think the greatest thing that we're seeing is a sense of a business's belonging within the levers for change and to see and understand that there is something that we can do as individuals, including as individual businesses, on a whole lot of different levels. I see a lot of businesses identifying um, key components. So instead of trying to identify all of the different risks and all of the different pathways in which they're going to have to adapt, is identifying one, two, three things that you can focus on because it helps to hone in people's time and energy across a business as well because it does take an entire organization an entire entity to be able to address a lot of these challenges and so to be able to communicate that across a diverse workforce or across multiple sites if you have that across your business um, when we focus on one or two key things it helps almost as that um, trojan horse to introduce adaptation and climate actions into those businesses and I see those that are taking a leadership position are doing that in a lot of ways that bring in people outside of their business looking for new models and partnering with their communities partnering with local iwi partnering with government or looking at others within their supply chain in which they can start to try new things and that willingness to give it a go is still in a development phase, if I can call it that, because you know we've talked a bit already about um, the levels of uncertainty. So the uncertainty around what we're going to invest um, in terms of our time and our people and our resources within a business, as well as what are the possible outcomes in terms of not just commercial return, but also what is that going to do to help support our um, relationships with our communities. But there's much more willingness and openness to that. And I think that is one of those silver linings that has come out of COVID as well. Oh, tēnā koe, Jodie. I hear some really strong links 
actually between your corridor and Sasha's. You know, how can we build momentum for change, whether it be through our triggers for motivation or the leadership of those we work with? So we talk a lot about adaptation to climate change, right? But what does that actually mean? Sometimes it can feel a little bit like a jargon term, disconnected from those actually doing what is climate adaptation. And a lot of work and action is making us more resilient to a changing climate, like wetland restoration or better urban planning or food sovereignty for papakainga. But it's often not called or seen as climate adaptation. So what does good adaptation to climate change look and feel like? Anita. So for me, I think it's really thinking about the long term and decisions that we make but also taking the opportunity to address other issues in the short term. So that might be addressing inequality or improving biodiversity. Um, For example, in urban areas, there's a lot of potential to use nature to help us survive the worst impacts of climate change like heat stress or mitigate against flooding, um, but at the same time provide habitats for our native biodiversity and, and provide benefits for society in general. So I think taking the short-term co-benefits but keeping an eye on the longer term as well and really thinking about flexibility so that we're not locking ourselves into one particular course of action when we don't know for sure what the future will be like. And then my final thing is actually not thinking about it separately but thinking about adaptation is part of every decision that we make, whether it's in urban planning and where we build our communities or or whether it's in our agricultural systems and where we decide to um, grow our food. So it needs to be part of all decisions, I think. And so, Sasha, earlier you spoke about climate change as a layer of well-being, and I wondered, for you, what does good adaptation to climate change look like? I think good adaptation is one of those phrases that's only appealing to those who are involved in the climate movement because really what good adaptation to climate change looks like is a whole lot of disparate activities woven into something that has an orchestral harmony to it. And so to me, good adaptation looks like finding a way to do genuine systems change with deep collaboration embedded into it and I think we've really struggled with that in our 21st century world about getting the right calibration and relationship between government, business and community. We all do good stuff and hope that our good stuff is in some way synchronised but to me this is an opportunity for quite a deep structural change to how we expect and hope that our civic sphere will operate with some different form of collaborative governance is probably about as appealing as good adaptation as a phrase, but some collective choreography about how we can align these things and potentially some nudges about the places where we expect different sectors to act. We all know that we are a long way into a time in which government's role in the market is merely to cure failures. We also have this reality that that's not always been the place of government. Governments can take a much stronger interventionist place. And sometimes, not always, definitely not always, but sometimes when they do, really profound structural changes of benefit to us all happen. 
like the experiments that led to the internet that began in government. We are now all recipients of that grand governmental experiment. What if we were doing more grand experiments so that our good adaptation to government wasn't just a multiplicity of minor changes, but some really grand moonshot activity as well that we could coalesce around? And I appreciate that we might have some trust issues with government doing that, but I think at this time, if we're going to make really bold change, someone has to be willing to be bold. And business is constrained about how far they can step into that. Community sector is financially and time poor. Um, And really, we do have a reliance on government, but an unwillingness amongst government to take that prominence in that leadership role, which I'm really hopeful that at this time, we we might get some more opportunities as um, the Just Transitions program becomes more developed. And I really like that language of Just Transitions as well, because it is about using climate change to address more than just climate change. Yeah, Sasha, I'm glad you bring up that Just Transitions work. I mean, to my understanding, it's been used in the past here mostly to look at how regions transition away from fossil fuels or large changes in the economic base in a way that doesn't disproportionately disadvantage people. And you've both talked about big, courageous steps and the orchestral harmony and the knitting or the weaving together of many different actions. Can you point us to an example that is perhaps outside of the climate conversation that has worked really well or you've seen really great movement because of connectedness across different spheres of action? Well, I think that um, um, our women's rights movement, for example, um, let's not take as inordinately long as that has taken to effect change. But the, the combination of the change in normative perception, so the moral expectations of our community, led by a grassroots movement, followed by the change in policy levers to reflect that effectively moral bargain we had struck um, as a society, and then the incremental changes that happened across every other sphere. At the time of women's pay parity, we had the same response from business that we did to the end of slavery. Business cannot possibly afford to either pay people at the end of slavery or to pay women fairly. Um, But what we know is that business can and did um, afford to do both of those structural changes um, quite comfortably with some innovation and some courage. And I think that as much as that example of the women's rights movement might sound like it was organic and disconnected, I think um, when you look inside, there are lots of human points of overlap, people knowing each other well enough to coordinate their action. And in a global era, we've invented organisations that can help with some of that connectivity, whether um, it's the UN or the World Economic Forum or the various other places that pretty much the usual suspects go to talk to each other about strategic action going forward and I think they're really important and um, they make really significant contributions but if we only dance with our known dance partners 
we're not going to invent any new dance steps. I think we need to find ways of engineering connectivity and coordination amongst unusual suspects because those unusual suspects on the margins quite often have the answers to disruption um, that we are looking for. Well, thank you, Sasha. You've really set this up and really illustrated to us in, I feel, really um, tangible terms how climate change is one of these large movements of change that it both is and needs to be. Uh, with courage, we require courage at many different levels um, and from many different players and dance partners. And Jody, what does good adaptation to climate change look and feel like from your perspective? Well, I call home Tatawihu, top of the south, and there we have an intergenerational strategy. And the heart of that is to punopono, is to be good ancestors. And so good adaptation for me, and when we talk about it in a community context there, it is about what are we doing now to be good ancestors? Because it also raises that question of what's not good adaptation, right? Is that we cannot band-aid our current problems and think that our current systems are going to solve that. And I think that's what Sasha is talking about as well. And so if we want to start thinking about how we collectively start to change these systems and build a future as good ancestors, there's a couple key things that come into that. One is trust, is we have to be able to take these big risks and go after big, bold, audacious goals together. And that's that collaboration. And that deep collaboration is going to require trust. And if we're going to really be thinking as good ancestors, we need to be de delivering collaborative solutions with an intergenerational time horizon. Yeah, so we're talking about costs and we're talking about um, how we make decisions. And Sasha mentioned before about using costs or, or tools as mechanistic or for motivational purposes. Anita, I wanted to ask you about decision support tools or what's actually being used to make investment decisions or support understanding trade-offs between investment decisions. How do those tools, those that are currently in use and those that are in development, uh, take into account both financial and non-financial impacts of adaptation decisions or, or benefits? Okay, so I'll just talk about some tools from my own understanding, which is uh, sort of applied economics, but I certainly don't want to pretend to be representative of all the approaches that are out there. I guess in the past, we've mostly used things like cost-benefit analysis when we've been trying to weigh up the benefits and the costs of a decision, usually like whether to invest in something, how much to spend. And, and that has problems um, in climate change adaptation. One, because, as I mentioned earlier, we have so much uncertainty about the future. So it's very difficult to compare the benefits, um, which are way off, potentially uncertain, with the costs which are present and now. But also... I mean, cost-benefit analysis can potentially capture some of the non-financial benefits of, a, of a, an investment. So there are some economic tools, and they're certainly not perfect. Um, I'd be the first to say that. But we can make some sort of very rough estimates about some of the less tangible benefits of an adaptation action. So, for example, if we were going to restore a wetland for flood restoration, for, uh, for example, you'd 
you could look at the direct benefits of avoiding the flooding, but you could also look at the benefits from the biodiversity that you're creating, the carbon storage, and it is much easier when there's a market for these things. So carbon sequestration in terms of trees, we do have the ETS, which is also imperfect, but could potentially provide us with some a revenue stream. Um, biodiversity, we have some understanding of the value of that. Um, again, not perfect. But when we come down to the the benefits, the cultural, the um, social, historical kind of benefits, they're much harder to value. And I mean, it's not unique to climate change decisions. It's, I guess, any kind of investment. And so often, often they get left out. And I think there are two kind of views towards whether we should try and put a number on them. But that number is always going to be wrong, I'm sure, and probably always underestimates the value. But if we don't include that in our current frameworks, they just get ignored. But I guess just coming back to the tools, there's an approach known as real options analysis, which basically builds on cost-benefit analysis. But it allows for a range of climate futures. So different RCPs, the the representative concentration pathways of warming, as well as the different global general circulation models that we have. So they can include all of those futures in a, in a modified kind of cost-benefit analysis, but also what real options analysis does. Sorry, there's a lot of jargon in here. It allows you to think, well, if I need, for example, to, or I think I need more water in the future and I need storage for that, I'm not quite sure whether in the future how much I'll need, whether I need a massive reservoir or whether I need a smaller one. It allows you to factor in the ability to extend it in future. And so you've got that option, but you don't have to act on it in the future. And it sort of allows you to take that into account in your calculations. Um, But not many examples of that being employed in practice. But I think we do need to start doing that because it would make our decisions more robust. There's another approach that is actually called robust decision making, which allows you to look at different adaptations and see how well they perform across a whole range of climate futures and then pick the one that performs the best, if that's what you want, or the one that is the cheapest. Um, So you can kind of, I guess you have to identify what your priorities are. But there are, as I say, a range of different approaches that we could start using but it takes a while for people to understand how to use them when I guess they're more familiar with the established approaches like cost benefit analysis but the reality is that we if we keep continuing to use our old tools we will probably make decisions that are going to lead us into greater vulnerability and certainly greater expense in the future. There's so much in there and this question of how to assess climate impacts outside of the financial as you say isn't unique to climate related decisions. So I guess the good thing is we're not alone. When we talk about impacts like cultural and social impacts of climate change and those impacts on our well-being that are often harder to quantify and arguably shouldn't be. Sasha, you've talked before about the motivational aspect of looking at quote-unquote costs. So how much do you think a growing awareness or a growing understanding of these cultural and social impacts of climate change are important in their contextual right? That is, say, to change the hearts and minds of those with the pens. That's um, not an easy question, but I think it's a really important one. As Anita's talked about, if we do what we've always done, we're going to get what we've always got. And we're here because we want something different. 
I think what we know, um, particularly from climate-related research, is that the more granular we make information for people, the more likely they are to be disengaged. So granular information, really detailed cost analysis, might work beautifully for the policy wonks, but for um, everyday people, it is entirely counterproductive. What's helpful for human-level decision-making is engendering a sense of autonomy and real choice. And I think that that also speaks to one of the other challenges in how we're approaching lots of our complex decision-making is that we've been trained into expecting linearity. We expect a linear relationship between the problem that we're trying to solve and the solution that seems rationally founded. And I've got lots of empathy for that, but I think it's putting a straitjacket on our imaginations. And so one of our um, most effective public health movements globally wasn't a public health movement. It was Pokemon Go, which got 50 million people out doing physical exercise. And that kind of solution, because it was a real solution for public health, it's just that wasn't its primary motivation, I think has a really critical role to play in climate change adaptation. Because if, if we can move away from people must believe in the cause to good action is good action and we'll take it and value it for what it is, it really changes what we might think is a desirable way to catalyse climate change responses that are good for our planet and communities. And I am sure that we can all think of countless examples of what what I would call multiple win solutions. So Pokemon Go to me, as, aside from the capitalist, lots of people made lots of great money off that. Um, it, it was a multiple win in terms of public health and community connection and all of that kind of stuff. To me, that's a different way of thinking because we're so used to seeing things on a spectrum of trade-offs that we start with the assumption that we can't have it all. We will cost things um, so that we can carefully weigh whether we want more apple or more orange and assume that we have to have a debate about trade-offs. There are just limitless examples of solutions that have the multiplicity of benefits. I don't believe we need to accept that there are trade-offs. And potentially some of the um, innovation that's coming from a well-being perspective has got inspirational value or perhaps it's the um, some of the examples coming out of indigenous communities where there is that expectation that we will achieve rounded benefits across social, environmental, cultural and further spheres. We can do that and I, I think we should try and encourage ourselves to believe in that more because that creates a pull motivation. If we look at behaviour change literature, they'd say that to create that autonomous sense of motivation, you can either scare me into acting or inspire me into acting out of notions of love and aspiration and yearning. And if you scare me into change, I'll do it for a little while, but then it will stop. 
but if you inspire me through love or positivity, then that motivation is more likely to endure. So I think if we wrap all of that into a way of building a a climate change movement, um, we've got the ingredients of something that is sustainable imagination for a collective future. Oh, tēnā koe, Sasha. You've got me dreaming of inspiring into action and really bringing the imagination into people's personal will and care and aroha into um, everything that we're doing. So thank you for that. Jody, you work with businesses who are coming from, a, I guess, a pool motivation, who are coming at this not because they have to, but because they want to. Uh, and you work and do research within this concept of the blue economy. Can you speak a little bit about what that might mean on the ground? Why are businesses thinking about what they can do more positively for our ecological, social and cultural well-being? Absolutely. And it's a great segue from what Sasha was just talking about, is that the blue economy is very much an aspiration. And it is about that pull of that we can do work within the marine environment that also provides for social, cultural and ecological well-being. And so we're at this point now, especially in a country like New Zealand, where we're a maritime country, 96% of our territory is at sea. We have 15 times more area in the ocean than we do on land. And so what we have here then is we have this massive opportunity to rethink and reimagine what the economy could be like and what those collaborative solutions for our biggest challenges from food security and um, biodiversity loss through climate change and all of the other risks that come with that. And the key thing about the blue economy is that it brings together a whole suite of sectors. And again, thinking about how do we create movement and how do you get a whole lot of moving parts to start to reframe their trajectory in line with a shared ambition. What I'm saying there is that if you look at a blue economy, and it's everything from fishing and aquaculture and coastal tourism through to the fact that we need a major shift in energy to wind energy, the ocean provides a huge opportunity for biotech in terms of resources available for medicines and other nutraceuticals. We've got um, a huge amount of work to do in engineering, shipbuilding, refitting. We move over 95% of our products in New Zealand by ship, and that has an impact as well. By setting together through you know, an ambition like a blue economy, an agenda that says, actually, it is possible for us all to play a role in that shared ambition and that we all have different ways in which we can do that helps us to start to see, ah, I have a part to play in that orchestra. Or actually, I can see my path might go this way and your path might come this way and that way. And we have these different touch points. We have different ways that we can do things together, but also have that autonomy to do things that are unique to my place. They may be unique to my business. They may be unique to my hapu. That shared ambition is hugely um, powerful because it empowers people and communities to start to make those collaborative choices and seek out collaborative solutions. So we've talked a bit about the levers and the frameworks that are driving change. And Jody, you're working on a development of a different type of disclosures framework for businesses in New Zealand. And 
this is beyond the established financial reporting standards and now what we have in place of climate-related financial disclosures, uh, which will require large financial entities to disclose publicly their climate-related risks and management strategies. And we've seen how this um, legislation on climate-related financial disclosures has really catalyzed a huge movement in the public and private conversation around business planning and a changing uh, climate since this was legislated in 2021. And so with your work on nature-related disclosures, can you tell us a bit about that? How how does it work? What is it trying to achieve? Well, nature-related financial disclosures goes a bit further than the climate-related disclosures because what we're looking at there is incorporating nature as a system and so including biodiversity loss but also acknowledging the other intrinsic and often immeasurable values of nature. It gets into um, something Anita was mentioning before as well is that sometimes we put metrics into place not because that number itself means something but it gives us a point. And the key thing for us within the value, I guess, for a business to be related um, in this TNFD space is that once we understand where we are and we understand that ambition and where we want to go, we can determine whether or not we're on the right path. And so a lot of this is in a space right now that we're not quite sure what the starting points are what the paths might be, and ultimately what the end game might be. That makes it extremely difficult to figure out what does a reporting framework and a financial um, statement look like for a business in that space. But what I would say is that through the work of Sustainable Seas, for example, we're looking at what are five or six potential metrics within the marine space that could help us start that conversation. Not that that metric is going to answer all of those questions, but it allows us to have the conversation around approach. How do you approach these things? How do we start to measure or take samples or track um, these metrics? And what do they do in terms of value realization? What do they return to the ecosystem? What do they return to those ultimate goals for biodiversity enhancement? And what do they do to ensure that as well for those businesses and the investors that it's providing the necessary return for them? Also thinking we're thinking very differently about return. It's not just the black line. There's a lot of other ways we're bringing in value creation into business. So for especially in the marine space, we're looking at an extremely complex ecosystem. It's very dynamic and it's changing very quickly through um, climate change. We're looking at a very dynamic well-being agenda in New Zealand in particular that's changing very quickly. And we're looking at the way that businesses start to create and value their financial return in whole new ways. And so TNFD sits in this crazy space of trying to put some kind of tangibleness into that imperfect as it is it's a really important conversation for us to be having I really appreciate when you say you know it gives us a point to work from and it allows us to have a conversation around how we might approach this and and that power of doing and and not sitting and thinking it's not good enough but that power of doing and that power of imagination and you bring in this concept of reciprocity and how are we all in our different spheres thinking about what impact we're having, what we're giving back, what we're taking and the actions that we're doing. I have one more question on, on this topic and that is, you've looked at what's 
occurring overseas um, in the nature-related disclosure space and thinking about what that might look like or be different in an Aotearoa New Zealand context. Are there any examples of what's important here in Aotearoa New Zealand that might be different to what you're seeing in terms of international examples? Yeah, absolutely, and I, I think that that leads with Mataranga Māori and bringing in a whole suite of knowledge that is truly unique to Aotearoa. It's something that um, also is, um, again, another one of those that's um, growing in our understanding and the way that that's um, embedded into decision-making, um, not just within Māori business and enterprise, but also within how we choose to make investments as a community um, that support our business ecosystems. So that, that stands out as something that is a unique attribute for New Zealand, a huge opportunity to lead the world as well. So we do see that there's a lot of um, interest in how we're considering that in terms of all of these frameworks and, and, and all the way through, you know, the sustainability framework agenda, for, you know, climate-related, nature-related, um, as well as the um, wider transparency initiatives. Thanks, Jody, And that really sits in this aspiration space. And Sasha, we've, we've talked a bit about the mechanisms of social change being as important as as the tools of investment. You know, they, they sometimes feel really, it feels weird and clunky to put those things side by side, but I feel like they naturally and inevitably, all of these aspects of our decision-making sit side by side and must sit side by side. But from your perspective, and this, I acknowledge this possibly as a crude way to, to frame a question, but is it social change, driving what and how we invest um, in our future, or is it what we invest in that's stimulating social change, or is it both? I, I think it's absolutely both, and what matters is they match, because how we act has to reinforce the leadership, it has to reinforce the framing, um, the narrative associations with the desired change, because at the point at which there's a disconnect between what we can do and how we might think of it, um, we've got real movement leakage happening. And ultimately, I think that opportunity to act our way into change uh, is increasingly important in these types of complex change initiatives because they are so complex and they they hurt our minds and hearts so much that the more that we can act we can gain kind of reassurance from acting. And that's one of the things that gives me real optimism because I think the pace of action is at a time of acceleration across so many things. I think it it took about 50 years for curbside recycling to go from something that was fought for to normalised. And now we're in that space where... There are new things, new actions, new opportunities arising pretty much on a daily basis. So we've moved from this painfully slow pace of change to a rapid one that enables us to act that will have meaning and value as long as we can harmonise it with the leadership and frame that we put around it, which I think places real importance on the people who are listening to this podcast they are the ones who are committed enough to be the ones that frame the sense making journey for us all and I thank you for all of their contributions in doing so Acting our way into change I like that 
Anita, we've talked a bit about what would happen if we underestimated the cost of climate change and in some ways that creating a decision paralysis. But what would really happen if we overestimated the costs of climate change? I think it depends on how we respond to that knowledge. Um, it does remind me of a cartoon that I used to show in talks, which was saying, what if climate change is a hoax and we create a better world for nothing? Um, so on one hand, we could use that, especially if we use that to address like a range of goals, if we've, as we've talked about today, like addressing social inequities and creating better social cohesion and restoring our natural environment then that would be fantastic and it wouldn't matter. It would just be beneficial if the changes didn't turn out to be quite as bad as we expected. But I guess the other answer to that question is that we do have limited financial resources and particularly if our adaptation takes the form of hard kind of engineering structures and infrastructure and it turns out that we spent too much, that we built too many seawalls or we invested in too much water storage. What else could we have spent that money on in that time? And so I do think that it's important that we have as good an understanding as we can about the costs of, um, of adaptation, the costs of inaction, but also the timing of action. We do need to be aware that often acting early will be more cost effective but there are some cases where we actually we can afford to delay and wait and see how the climate changes and learn a little bit uh, more about it um, so that when we do make some large investments that we, we have more certainty so I think it's all about the types of adaptation that we do that will really determine whether or not we've overestimated climate change. So I think that brings us to a really nice um, moment of reflection and I thank you all for bringing your imaginations to the conversation today and you've all said really beautiful and eloquent things today that I'm going to reflect on for a while um, but I want to finish with the one thing if you can think of one thing that gives you hope and optimism about how we're choosing to adapt to climate change and what we are leaving for our grandchildren and our grandchildren's grandchildren Jody. Over the last few years, the thing that has resonated so strongly with me has been this cohort of young people. Um, and I'm thinking about a lot of those that are just entering the workforce and their intelligence, their vision, their worldliness, and their perseverance to see a good world. Um, and to ask questions, to hold us and other positions to account, um, and to bring some of those hard conversations to the table. Because that can't be easy to do that. But the thing that, I, that gives me this amazing sense of hope as well is what, come, what I see that sometimes gets run over by headlines and sensationalism is a true respect for other generations, for older generations that have made mistakes, for generations that are and in, in those that are in positions of power to say, I want to work with you. What can I also learn? And what can we do if we sit at that table together? 
And I think there is huge hope um, and a huge amount of inspiration for me when I think of what can happen when we start to break down those traditional barriers and open up that imagination and that exploration across generations. So then when we really are thinking of intergenerational solutions, we are doing that intergenerationally. Anita, how do you feel? What what gives you hope and optimism? For me, it's the local stories, isn't it? It's the examples of people who are getting on and doing it. So communities, um, I, I don't have a huge personal involvement with Matauranga Māori, but from what I do here, that seems so inspiring. And also in, in the primary sector where I where I do work more, it is also about um, going back some of, to some of the more traditional ways of farming approaches or techniques that were lost because we intensified and it was just easier to put on more fertiliser and irrigation but actually um, now that there are a range of reasons why farmers can't rely on that all the time um, they're looking back to what their their earlier generations did so I think it is those local examples that are the way to tackle climate change and feel some hope for the future. Thank you Anita. And Sasha, you've already talked a little bit about hope and optimism, but what would you like to leave with today in terms of what really holds you steadfast in your vision for the future? Definitely share the um, the hope that comes from Jodie's reference to the next generation coming through. When my eldest daughter was about two and a half, she was schooling me on what could be recycled. The earlier our tamariki are learning about these things, the more space they have to do the really bold things. I find that really inspiring. And one thing I am um, hopeful for, perhaps more than hopeful about, is that we can also summon some of our historical national courage for bold structural change. Because we were the first to enfranchise women. We did Um, courageously go nuclear free and we invented ACC we've got actually a really strong pedigree as a country in some of the bold structural changes that I think need to accompany sustainable and accelerated pace the thing on our side for that kind of bold structural change is that we are two to six degrees removed from one another So we can find the dance partners that we need to affect the change that we hope for. We've done it before. We can do it again, fueled by the inspiration of our tamariki and the everyday hero um, who tipped our understandings of what was possible on its head, which seems like exactly what we need now. That history of courage is one that we we all have in us and something that we can really hold on to. And so I just really resonate with these conversations of drawing and learning and looking back to what we have that has come before us and looking forward to who is coming with us or after us or now really pushing for change, who will live in this future that we are currently making decisions for. This really leads beautifully into our symposium, Kopapa Korangi, that we hope will, will offer a moment to really step out of the day to day and imagine what good decisions would feel like. And I think today we've spent some time thinking about what good decisions might feel like. So, with that, I'd just like to thank you all for coming. It's been a real pleasure and a real honour 
to have the three of you here today, uh, Anita Reeford, Sasha McMeeking and Jodie Kunch. Thank you so much for coming into the studio and talking with me today on how we're making decisions, what we're valuing, uh, what our frameworks are, what are our social mechanisms for change and where our hope and inspiration and our movement is coming from. So tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. That was Sasha McMeekin, Anita Reeford and Jodie Kunch speaking to Kate Turner. And that was the last of our Kōpapa Korangi conversations ahead of the Deep South Challenge Symposium on reframing the costs of climate change. After the event, we'll be putting all of these conversations on this podcast stream, so stay subscribed. Kōpapa Korangi is brought to you by the team at Deep South Challenge. Alex Keeble, Kate Turner, Maximilian Scott-Murray and Sally Owen. It was edited and produced by Kirsten Johnston at Popsock Media. Studio recordings and mixing was by Will Saunders and Steve Burridge. Our music was generously gifted to this project by Deep South Challenges Pautikanga Ruia Apirahama and his brother Rania and comes from their album Whare Māori. Additional music is from Woodcut. Ngamahinui kia koutou katoa to all of those who gave us their time and expertise for this series. To learn more about the Deep South Challenge, te komata o te tonga, head to deepsouthchallenge.co.nz. Komani Dunlop tēnei. Thank you for listening. Kia tō te maudi. Hei kona.